we go. Uh, Hi, every. Well, hold on a second, Bill. Hi, everybody. It's uh, October the 18th, 2018. Hey, it's 10 18 18. It's six o'clock and it's time for my private audio call tonight. Our special guest speaker is Bill Thornton. Hi, Bill. Welcome. Howdy. Nice to, nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear yours, too. Haven't spoken to you in a while. What's been going I on? I know. Well, I've been feeling like an orphan, you know, because I hadn't talked to you so long. But Aww. here we are. <laughs> and uh, today I'm going to do a little bit of a monologue. And I'm going to lay out a new strategy for everybody. Because, oh, how exciting. Uh, yes, this will be a little bit different. In fact, maybe quite a bit different in some people's minds. So um, anyway, um, basically, I want to, I'll start off by talking about uh, 1215.org, 1215.org. And it's called 1215 because that is the year that the Magna Carta got signed, in the year 1215. And um, the website is for the Nitty Gritty Law Library, and the whole purpose of the Nitty Gritty Law Library is to make free information available to everybody who are doing battle with their cases and to provide some legal education, as well as some law education. The exception to that, however, is that I do have one link on there to an outfit called jurisdictionary.com. And that is run by an attorney who doesn't necessarily understand what we are doing, but he does such an excellent job of laying out the procedures in the courts. He's really distilled it down. So in like about two days, uh, you can get the uh, whole process of how the courts work. It's really good. So um, I recommend people to his uh, his website. Uh, he does charge money for it, $249 for a year subscription. And um, for years I have, like decades actually, I've been referring people to him and I've not had one single complaint. So I think that's a pretty good record on his part. He does charge $249, but I consider it the greatest bargain for two reasons. One of them is it's a good deal just in the knowledge you get, but the other is it saves me a lot of work. The website 1215.org uh, gives you concepts. So you get concepts from uh, the website and from jurisdictionary.com, you get procedure. So it's a, it's a good match. And, uh, and, and just as a footnote, um, he does offer me a commission on each one I sell. However, I've never accepted a commission from him. My recommendation to him is genuine, not influenced by anything he might give me. So um, in any case, um, the website 1215.org, I feel is a little treasure house of, of uh, information. And it, uh, I would like that information to be preserved for eternity. So on the home page in the lower left corner, there is a copy left link. And if a person clicks on that, they can download the entire website onto their own computers. So uh, I'm 79 years old now, so who knows when I'll leave the scene. And uh, 
everybody can hopefully benefit by passing on the knowledge. Um, also on the website, on the home page at the top, there's a search function. So you can click on that, put in any keywords you want, and you can find stuff that's on that website. So that, that's, uh, that's my propaganda, you might say, for the website. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about the history and the situation that we have today. Um, we have a problem with uh, the fact that there are people in the world who for some reason don't care about our freedoms. And in fact, they're only too happy to take them away from us. So um, there have been some quite intelligent minds uh, put to this problem. And unfortunately, we have not found the perfect solution, even though there's been various experiments. The United States, uh, when it was first formed, became known as the great experiment in, in uh, freedom, great experiment in liberty. It was, uh, uh, um, it, it was the first time a republic on this scale had been formed, and uh, it, it was quite, uh, quite a deal. Uh, the problem that the uh, founding fathers had was we needed a, um, a central government that was strong enough to keep the uh, keep England, France, and Spain and Mexico at bay, but at the same time was not so powerful that it could take over the people. So that's basically why we came about, and uh, that was fine for a few years. But in 1792, there was a fellow by the name of Freneau, and he had a newspaper here in the United States. And he wrote an article called Rules for Changing a Republic into a Monarchy. And that's on the website. And if you read those rules, you will get a very, very nice summary of exactly what's happening here in this United States. And uh, he, uh, uh, he was definitely on the side of the people, but he did write this article to let, let the people know that Here's how, if, if we lose our system, if we lose our republic, and if it becomes a monarchy or a dictatorship, that's how it's going to be done. And you'll see when you read the article, one by one, each of the points he points out uh, did exactly happen. In 1954, uh, actually 1953, the Reese Committee, named after the uh, Congressman Reese, uh, did a lot of research on what was going on in the country, the, the real story behind the demolition of America by tax-exempt foundations. And they produced a, a, uh, a book, a report, that has about 2,000 pages in it. But they go into it, they name actual names, who's doing what, where, when, how, why, and so forth. And these tax-exempt foundations which were um, basically all of them were sponsored by four extremely rich men. There was Ford, there was Carnegie, and a couple of others. Can't remember their names at the moment, but in any case, on the website, you can read that book. Uh, it's a long book, but you can download it and read it, and uh, 
it will tell you very much what's going on in this country. Then in 1999, the the government uh, was certainly unhappy with uh, the people, as were a lot of people unhappy with the government. And uh, the Southern, what is it, Southern Poverty Law Foundation, something like that, Anyway, that foundation... Yeah, Southern Poverty Law Center, yeah. Yeah, the Southern Poverty Law Center. And and what they did, um, they, along with the judges, came up with a book called the Anti-Government Movement Guidebook. And there's a copy of that on the website. And basically, it's a guidebook uh, helping the judges to kick out anybody who goes into court representing himself. So if you have a perfect case, well, you've got a good chance of of, uh, winning your case, but it does have to be perfect. If it's not perfect, you have almost 100% chance that they'll figure out a way to kick you out because, frankly, they don't like amateurs. They're professionals. They know how they do things, and amateurs coming in just bog down the system from their point of view. So justice is very difficult to achieve. You couple that, that alone is bad enough, but you couple that with the corruption in the courts. They are intellectually corrupt in a big way. Uh, You often find, if you really dig into things, you find that there are cross connections where the judges are um, absolutely um, are corrupt. Okay? And There isn't necessarily a direct uh, bribery, you might say, but sometimes there's indirect bribery. Like, for example, a bank might sell a house to uh, the judge's daughter for a very reasonable price, or his brother or his mother or whatever. So, or make very cheap loans and then write off the loans later, you know, no penalty. So you have these, these indirect bribery problems But whatever, the point is there's a lot of corruption. So here we are. We're trying to go into court and get get some sort of um, justice. And, you know, any any, uh, nine-year-old could probably read your papers, and assuming you don't make them too complicated, uh, could understand what the problem is and probably make the correct decision. However, magically, the, uh, the judges... Um, somehow they they go dumb and they can't understand your papers. And just as an example, I remember I had a case going. I was the plaintiff. And uh, when I wrote my papers, I had my papers uh, red marked by two different attorneys who did not know each other. But I had them look at my paperwork and just give me suggestions for corrections. I also passed the paper through a friend who was an absolute uh, genius when it came to uh, writing English. And uh, then I also had a secretary that I passed him through who she didn't know anything about law, but um, the reason I gave it to her is because I wanted to see if she could understand it. You know, was the writing clear enough? So I had four people filtering my paperwork 
So I went to court one day, and the judge said to me, he says, you know, he says, I'm leaning over backwards to give you the benefit of the doubt because you're representing yourself. But he says, I don't understand your paperwork. Could you explain it to me? Well, I did not explain it to him. I got the message. The message is you ain't going to win here, okay? Because this this judge, I'd watched him in other cases. He was very intelligent. There's no way he could not understand these papers. So the, the message was clear. So this is the problem that we all run into. Uh, we're doing the best we can. Uh, not all of us really understand how the law works. We're not educated like the judge is or even the attorneys, but we don't know. So I've come up with a strategy. Now, the strategy is this. When we go into court, we put together our case. And obviously, the goal is to win your case. You want to win it. And you want to win it fair and square. That's normally, that's what most people want. They, they're not asking for more than they deserve, but they'd like to get some justice. And uh, so that's your first goal. A second goal is that it'd be nice if your case somehow had an effect on the system so that we had a little more integrity. In other words, not only do you want to benefit yourself, but you'd like to benefit the rest of the world in your case. Well, of course, with the corruption, that's very difficult. So I thought about this for quite a long time. In fact, uh, a couple of decades I thought about it. That's how long I thought about it. And, uh, you know, I find that the, uh, the Bible is a great source of inspiration and wisdom, mainly wisdom. And in the King James Version, we have Matthew 5, uh, verse 25, and here's what it advises us. It says, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the utmost farthing. Now, that's King James language. There's also the Good News translation, so I'll read the same verse, but in more modern English. It says, if someone brings a lawsuit against you and takes you to court, settle the dispute while there's time, before you get to court. Once you are there, you will be turned over to the judge who will hand you over to the police and you will be put in jail. There you will stay, I tell you, until you pay the last penny of your fine. So this is pretty good advice. I looked at that, I considered it, and I said, okay, here's what we do. You settle with your adversary. Okay, you get a traffic ticket, sign the ticket, go ahead and pay it. Okay, I know a lot of people might instinctively disagree with that. But I say pass it. Or, or, I say, go ahead and sign it. Go ahead and pay the fine, whatever the fine is. If you don't do that, you get a big fight. You spend a lot of time and effort defending yourself, and they jack the charges up. Sometimes they add to it uh, uh, resisting arrest or who knows what. And so it just gets more expensive, 
and the government loves it. They like a good fight, and uh, and they love raising the the price on you. So we got to avoid that. And just like it says, if your adversary delivers you to the judge, once you're there, you'll be handed over to the police, or if not the police, you'll be told what you'll have to pay the opposition. I found that out one time when I went to court, and uh, I was, again, I was the plaintiff in that case, Um, but um, the judge told me that there, that he just wanted to understand what was going on. So we talked a certain amount of time in the court. Then suddenly the judge popped up and said, well, he says, I think a summary judgment would be in order here. And uh, the uh, the uh, lawsuit is dismissed and uh, the plaintiff will pay for all of the attorney's fees for the defendant. Well, of course, that was highly improper because in, under California rules, you should have at least 30 days to answer whatever motion somebody makes for a summer judgment. So um, the opposing attorney immediately popped up and moved for that, and the judge immediately granted it. So, you know, that was very biblical because they were my adversary, and this is, this is the best result they could get and still look legitimate. So uh, what I'm suggesting is that whenever you have a contention, could be for anything, well, not anything. I mean, some things are too important and you cannot follow my strategy. You know, if you're looking at five years or 10 years in jail, then my technique won't really be all that great. But if you're talking about the normal uh, tort process where you're suing somebody or they're suing you, uh, then you can you can apply this strategy. Or if you if you have maybe the penalty is a day in jail or something, then you can do this. But the idea is you settle with your adversary. Sometimes you can talk to the uh, the prosecutor. I remember one time I was um, in court. I had two processes. I had a uh, an infraction which was um, for something, some driving type thing. And then I had a failure to appear, which was a misdemeanor. Of course, a misdemeanor is supposed to be a bigger crime. Well, I went to the prosecutor right in the courtroom and before things got started, and I said, uh, I said, would it be all right if I uh, plead guilty to the uh, failure to appear and you dismiss the, uh, you know, the infraction. Well, his reaction was, well, a misdemeanor is much worse than an infraction. Why would you want to do that? And I said, well, that's what I'd like to do. You know, if you would do that, would you do that? Well, he was reluctant because that didn't make sense to him to, for me to take the the worst case and uh, somehow they dismissed the lesser case. So when it came time, I think the uh, the prosecutor was so shocked by it that he proposed to the judge that they dismiss both cases in the interest of justice, which of course the, the judge granted since the prosecutor was making the motion. Later, I, a few minutes later, leaving the courtroom and there was an attorney who had heard all the proceedings and he was going out the courtroom 
And so I, I talked to the attorney briefly, and I asked him why why it was that he dismissed both cases, you know, because of what I was offering. And and his explanation was, as well, they're just stupid. <laughs> that that was the attorney's opinion of the of the prosecutor. But um, in any case, what I did was not not really understanding what I was doing. What I did was I was following the, the uh, biblical principle of settling with my adversary. Now, once you settle with your adversary, their show is finished. They're happy. You paid your debt to society. That's what they like to say. And so everything is just cool. However, you're not happy. So now you can invoke your common law proceedings. You can uh, sue them. And you can sue them because they basically abuse their authority. I'm assuming that they did, okay? We don't want to make up stories here, but we do want justice. And so now the way is open to sue them. They have no chance to jack up the charges because their case is over. Um, No chance to raise the fine because their case is over. No chance to put you in jail if that's involved because, like I said, their case is over. But your case is not over. And so you just sue the pants off them. Now, the beauty of this is this. You have to understand that government is a business, all right? They have to make money at what they're doing. They have their budgets. So money comes in and money goes out. They have to be sure that less money goes out than comes in. So they're going to get their money through fines and penalties and so forth, um, while they're paying the salaries of the judges and the and the and the attorneys or whatever, so when you sue them, here's the neat thing: every time you put a paper in, every time you make a motion, you'll probably cost them around a thousand dollars, because even if you never win your lawsuit, you've won for the people, because they cannot function without paying their attorneys. If you put in 20 different motions on various things, you just cost them $20,000. Your cost is your filing fees, or if you're in form of papyrus or have a fee waiver, it didn't cost you anything except your time. Obviously, you have to spend your time. And you don't, and if you have a weak case, you don't really care whether you win or not. You know, as long as you run their costs up. So, as some people have said, you burn their budgets. By burning their budgets, they notice that. Does it make sense to spend $10,000 in order to collect a $100 fine? Well, it doesn't. And believe me, the, the prosecutor or whoever it is that's going after you, and when you're suing back now, He's got questions to answer to his boss. Why is this costing so much? You know, all we collected was $100 or $500, whatever, and we're spending $10,000 to win this case? Doesn't make sense. And there's um, a fellow by the name of Bob Schaefer. Unfortunately, he recently passed away. But Bob Schaefer 
there was a standing order in the CHP, that's the California Highway Patrol, do not stop this guy. Do not touch him. Doesn't matter what he does. Leave him alone. Why? Because he had cost them so much money that there was simply wasn't worth it to the state. Other people have used this technique with the Internal Revenue Service. And magically, the Internal Revenue Service has sent them a letter saying, well, uh, we've made a determination that you're not required to pay the taxes, but if anything changes in your condition, please let us know. So the trick here, it's basically what we're saying is we have a war of attrition. If you settle with your adversary first, that limits your cost. It also limits your effort. You spend no effort on defense. Well, you spend a little effort. You might say, I object. You could say that I, I feel you're violating the Constitution, but you don't make a big deal of it because all you're doing is putting them on notice. And if they were responsible people, they would inquire further, but usually they don't because they are irresponsible. And so that record works against them later. And you, what you do is um, you then sue them run their costs up, and eventually, maybe it might take several lawsuits. You might have to have several interactions. Maybe, you know, the code enforcement comes out and says you have to fix things. They have these bogus requirements that you fix something on your house. And uh, so if you sue them each time, they're going to realize that you're too expensive and they have nothing on you, or if they thought they did, it got settled earlier, so they can't jack it up. So now what you do is you, um, uh, having run their costs up, they finally figure out, oh, yeah, you were right after all. So, yeah, you don't have to pay the property tax, or you don't have to pay for the meter on the wall, or whatever it is. So that's the, in, in, that is kind of a summary of the strategy that I suggest. So in a nutshell, the government or some agency comes after you. You settle with them as quickly as possible to minimize your cost and effort. Then you turn around and you sue them for their abuse of authority or whatever you see as the weakness in their case. And if you win, that's wonderful. But if you don't win, at least you've started down the road of making their cost so high in comparison to what they're going to get that they event they do figure out that uh, oh well they didn't have any authority over you in the first place and you know everything's fine and then they leave you alone so that's my two cents worth maybe worth one cent and i hope you all like it and um now we can open this up for any questions or commentaries that anybody would like. Hey, yeah, we have, let's see here, a couple of people have their hands up. Well, no, JC has his hand up. Go ahead, JC, you've been unmuted. Hi. Hello. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing great. Happy to hear from you, JC. What do you got on your mind here? Well, um, you know, I kind of uh, just hit the internet scene probably about six months ago, 
and Angela was nice enough to have me on her show for the first time back in um, June, and I've always been a really big fan of yours. Um, in fact, you. like you're, you are the sole reason why, um, you know, about six and a half years ago I had a kid, and I had made a lot of money in my life. And I'm sorry about my voice. I've been really sick for the past couple of days. Um, well, hopefully but, you won't die young. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> knock on wood. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but I was up and I didn't feel right about what I was doing with my life when I had a kid. And I was kind of YouTube searching and I came across a video about you speaking about the common law. And I had spent a couple of years in law school prior to this. And that video single-handedly made me go down to the law library almost every day. I have over 500 gigabytes of law book pictures um, on, my, on my hard drive. And I, I just wish to express thank you, Bill. Like, thank you a lot. And well, I'm, I'm happy to... that you benefited. Happy that you benefited. I've been able to help a lot of people, and I, I have a document right here in my hand that I wish to read to you. Um, I'm not going to read who it was addressed to or what county or, or, well, it's in South Carolina because that's actually in the document. So it says, and this is signed by a high clerk, it says, you have asked me to answer a series of questions that although may seem simple, are relatively more complex. The question of whether or not courts of law still exist can be found in the South Carolina statutes and the South Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure. Now, I thought it was very interesting because throughout this entire document, they never call them statutes. They call them statues, like idols, okay? Like, uh, sure, sure. Right. I, I've heard of that before. In fact, uh, there was a guy years ago that I heard on a videotape who pointed out that the proper word was statue and not statutes with a T. Uh, but the modern spelling seems to use the word T, and I've never really researched that out to see why statue would, would how it contrasts with the word statute. Well, I can actually get into that really in detail in just a second. Mm -hmm. um, but okay. This goes on to common law actions to pursue common law remedies are filed in the Court of Common Pleas, which is established by South Carolina Constitution and South Carolina statutes. Pursuant to South Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure, Rule 3A, a civil action is commenced when the summons and complaint are filed with the clerk of court in conjunction with other requirements listed in the rule. The unified... Okay, now stop. Stop right there. Stop right there. Okay. Because right there, there's, some, there's a misunderstanding of how this all works. First of all, you got to understand that every state in the union is a republic and the people are above the government the people 
created the Constitution, which the government then has to follow. Okay, so the authority goes from you to the government through the Constitution. The, the state can say all at once that it's going to set up a, a court of record. But you see, a court of record is not a civil court. Court No more than a criminal court is a civil court. A court of record is a separate court with its own set of common law rules. And remember this, that a court of record proceeds according to common law procedure but it can still sit in judgment and apply non-common law rules. So it's only the procedure that a court of record has to follow in order to be a, a court of record. So the fact that the state is designating something to the court of record, and you notice the state specifies in its, in its rules that you're going to follow the, the uh, civil court rules. But the court of record is not a civil court. So you, as uh, remember also that the the basic definition of a court is that it is the person and the suit of the sovereign. So you you set up your court by suing somebody, and the particular kind of court would be a court of record, which is the highest court in the nation. It's higher than the United States Supreme Court because you're the sovereign, and you have formed your court. And so you delegated authority to the state, but that doesn't mean you gave up your authority. And some tasks are simply too important to allow the representatives to uh, handle for you, so you handle it yourself. That's the nature of a republic. So you see hey, the flaw. Phil. Yeah. Hey, Phil, I, I absolutely agree with you. 100%, and it's, it's really awesome that every state was guaranteed a Republican form of government because after World War II, most states, states and their representatives have changed their form of government from republic to democracy. But you as the individual can choose to exercise that Republican form of government. And this comes out of a case law, and it agrees with everything that you just said. And this comes out of the case law in South Carolina, State versus Hunt, and it's a, it says it reads this: It is hardly necessary to remark on some matters which were argued in arguments, as that the people are bound by the rules of duty and morality. Undoubtedly, they are thus bound. They are responsible to opinion. They are bound by good faith. They may be resisted by force or subdued by superior power. But their acts are not subject to the legal control of any constituted authority. To suppose so would be a plain absurdity, as all constituted authorities are constituted by them and derive their power from them alone. Okay, now could you give us a more clear uh, sight there? It's state versus who and what are the numbers? State versus Hunt, it's, um, it's a South Carolina case. It went to the Supreme Court. I have, I just have that picture on my phone. So if I got your email address, I could actually email you the case. Um, well, that would be nice, but I, I, 
that would be nice, but I'd like to have it so that the listeners can can know what it is as well. Okay, well, I, I will actually be on Angela's call next week. Um, I'll be the guest next week, so I can have it prepared by then. I don't have it right at my fingertips. Okay, well, all we need is the, the case name and the specific numbered sites. Then anybody can look it up. We don't need the yeah, case itself. The, the, the name of the case, State versus Hunt. It's in South Carolina, and I don't have the do you, specific site. Like right. How do you here, spell I mean, the name? Like huh? How do you spell the name? Like state S T A T E versus Hunt H U N T. I believe it was the case was in 1932, or I mean 1832. It was a really interesting case because it was about a South Carolina militia man, and he was also uh, enrolled in the federal army, and it deals with a lot of sovereignty issues. And because he's, he's being charged with breaking his oath, but he's saying he's keeping his, his one oath to God, and, you know, the state and the federal oaths are, are both separate, and it's, if you have two sovereigns, like how does somebody serve two masters? It's, it's about a right. hundred and thirty-page uh, court report, but it's really, really interesting. And I got to hand it to you, Bill. You're the first person I've ever read this to that caught it right off the bat. They said 100% that a common law court exists and that they will respect it, but they also tried to push the individual into a civil case because there's a difference right. between a common law court and a civil court. So That's um, right. The only, the only difference I kind of see in maybe some opinion is a court of record, in my opinion, is just your record. Like you, every man and every woman has their own court. And they keep a record of their own court, you know, whether they record on their phone or, you know, take video or write in a journal. Oh, no. No, no. Your, your definition has wandered off the reservation. A, a, a record is kept by the clerk, an official written record, and all it has in the record is what proposal was made to the court and what decision was made about it. Everything else is a side issue and not part of the record. Furthermore, the court of record owns the word record in the same way that a doctor owns the word patient. You know, if you're a mechanic, auto mechanic, you don't talk about uh, fixing your patient's car, okay? You, you have a customer. So the... Uh, court of record owns the word record, the equity courts do not keep records. They may have something that they call a docket, or they might call a, uh, what is it, uh, registry of actions is another name you see, but it's not a record. Go ahead. Okay, well, what I have found is what people really wish to find is a court of law. Because even if they find a court of record, it doesn't necessarily mean that 
the judge respects it as a court of law, like you were talking about a court of record moving, uh, you know, under the common law. And for instance, well, let me deal with that. Do what? Let, let me answer. Let me answer that point. When you when you open your court, you the first sentence that I have in a lawsuit is I say I am so and so one of the people of either the state of whatever or of the United States, and in this court of record, complain of, and then I list the names. Now, right there, that simple short phrase or, or short sentence uh, immediately suspends the judge. The judge is not allowed to make any decisions whatsoever. Not only that, but a court of record is a court of law. So if the judge does make a decision, if he does disrespect your court, which they always do in the beginning, you can issue a writ of error correcting his behavior. You can, you can uh, rescind any decision that he makes because he absolutely is not authorized to make any decisions in a court of record. There are four requirements to a court of record. And one of the requirements is that the uh, the tribunal is independent of the magistrate who's conducting the proceedings. Well, the judge is a magistrate. All judges are magistrates. And the tribunal is the one who does the judging, does the real judging. So if, if a judge disrespects your, your, uh, your court, then you can correct him with a writ of error. And if he does it a second time, you can fine him for contempt of court. And if, and if he's persistent, maybe you'll fine him a couple more times, raising the fine each time. And if he's still persistent, you can issue a bench warrant for his arrest. And on 1215.org, there's an example where that was actually done. Now, the judge never got arrested, but he sure changed his tune. Yeah, well, me and a group of people, me and a group of 13 people, in fact, went up to Henderson County, North Carolina, to swear out an arrest warrant on a judge um, who kidnapped me. He, he took and carried away my body with malice because I helped an 88-year-old war veteran, Korean war veteran, stand up in court and, so that he could say the attorney who was there was not representing him. And, uh, you know, the judge had us both arrested for contempt. And you can actually go look at it on um, public notice, lawless authority on YouTube. And then I came out with another one where it shows that they probably filed all of the paperwork and there's no time or stamp date, um, but they probably put it into the clerk's file in the middle of July when they actually held my body in March, on March 26th. And, uh, well, I can answer I mean, that. Want... You see, uh, when you're walking down the street, you know that you have a reasonable expectation to be left alone. But occasionally somebody comes along and says, puts a gun in your face and says, give me your money. He's going to rob you. Now, I understand that at the time the robber does the robbery, he looks pretty good. You know, he's in charge. He's got you under control and so forth. That does not mean that he's right. And 
uh, the logical follow-through on that is once you get out from under his control, you're going to do everything you can to pursue him and get justice. Same thing applies to the judge. If a judge, the judge did all this, I'm not saying if he did, but I accept that he did do that. He is now breaking the law. If you had a court of record and you're the plaintiff and he's doing this to you, then you can hold him in contempt of court. And if, if it totally fails, if he issues an order to the clerks telling you that, that you cannot uh, file any more papers, which is what they do from time to time, then you can go to a different form and actually sue the judge. If you're in a state court, you can go to the federal court and sue them there for lack of due process. Or if you're in a federal court and the federal judge does that, you can take them to task in a state court. So um, I don't deny that these judges do wrong things. And after all, they do have the guns to back them up in the form of a deputy sheriff or whatever. But uh, that doesn't mean they're lawful or legal. Uh, well, I agree with you there, but you know, the only thing is, is that we've done everything that you've suggested. I mean, we've even written to the Supreme Court Justice of the state and told them, you know, they have a lawless court over there, and when they find the law, it'd be very courteous of them to return it. And that's, that's basically well, I- where we've got that there is no law. Like, People are going to have to come together and stand with one another to bring law back to the courthouse. Okay, I can respond to that. The, uh, you have to understand that the only way that you can get that problem looked at maybe seriously is to do an appeal, okay? If you, um, if you just write them and tell them about it, well, that's nice. You told them about it, but that doesn't trigger anything. You have to make a formal complaint to whatever agency that does that. Now, assuming that you did We've that. We've already done that. Uh, We've already done yeah. that, but we well, can't talk about yes. illegal. Like, illegal yes. for us to talk about the formal complaint, okay? And ever since time immemorial, and this is about common law, so ever since time immemorial, the chief justice, the head justice of every state or of the United States is responsible for all of the, un- like, justices underneath them. When you go to Well, we understand that, point, but they have a procedure. We understand that, but they have a procedure. You have to follow the procedure if you're going to complain. But let me tell you something. The, it, it's, uh, I've seen it happen over and over again. You can make a complaint against a judge, and the, they will always come back not seeing that there's any problem. But that doesn't mean it's forgotten, because the judges do not like publicity, negative publicity. So they will, whenever possible, if there's any way they can do it, they will find that this judge is not guilty of whatever offense that's obvious to the normal person. But then what happens is that sometimes these judges, the high judges, get fed up with the lower judge. And then very quietly, they'll convince him to get off the bench. He'll suddenly retire so he can spend more time with his family or some excuse like that. So they like to do things quietly. I, I recommend well, that whenever a judge... Promotion. 
Like, they literally gave well, this guy a promotion. Okay. Well, they did that, too. So, you know, they we have a club of criminals. But the thing is, is that I'm not saying it's a perfect system. I'm not saying I have all the answers. What I am saying is, is that you got to pressure these people. I, I actually think if the more people would sue, react, carry out this court of record, then the powers that be will feel the pressure because it's running their costs up. And remember, that's the key thing. It, money counts. And so you run their costs well, up and and make them spend their budgets. Okay? Here, and I don't say you're point necessarily of, going to win. Here's my point of view is that people who really control this country, the people who really own this country, they don't care about money. They can print all the money they want. They can raise the debt ceiling whenever they wish. They've been doing this back since the 40s, the 30s. So really what it's going to take is it's going to take a movement of actual people going down to the courthouse and saying, hey, we're going to require that you guys act lawfully. I mean, a five-year-old knows the difference between right and wrong. You were just saying earlier in the show how, you know, typically you try and write stuff so easily, and I, I do too where a seven-year-old could read it, a seven- or an eight-year-old could read it and know and understand what it says. And when you can go into court and have a judge sit there and tell you that he doesn't understand that paperwork just because they don't wish to act upon it, well, you know, the first thing I would say if a judge say didn't understand my paperwork is, well, don't you want to get somebody who does? Because you don't have an obligation to understand the court. The court has an obligation to understand you. And just to give an example of that, back around March um, in that same courthouse, I helped a Russian woman get her child back in four days, and she absolutely put everything into the court in Russian. And the court had to interpret it. They didn't tell her that she had to change it over to English. They had to interpret it in Russian. And this comes from a long practice custom called the Pleadings in English Act, way back in like 1362 or something. So the court absolutely has to understand you, and they do understand you. These people have law degrees. They know the difference between right and wrong. They just don't care. And until the public cares, until the public gets out there and says, hey, you're robbing an 88-year-old war veteran and I'm not going to let you get away with it, then, you know, society is just going to be lawless. Literally well, now lawless. you're talking politics. Now you're talking politics. You've left the region of theory of law. And what I'm offering here is a theory of law and perhaps a practical solution for the short term. Now, what you're talking about is a longer-term process where you have to stir up the rabble and get them to actually uh, deliver a message. But it's not enough to go in and say, hey, you're doing a bad job. You actually have to do something that makes them spend their budgets. And remember that the judges do not make up the budgets on their own. What it is is that they have to get the money from somewhere else. So uh, once they have their budget set for the year, and then you start impacting that, that's when they notice it. And maybe the next year they can ask for more money, but hopefully you'll have more people educated that will cost them even more money. 
till finally they figured out that maybe we ought to do, change our style. But that's a political question. What we're here today for is uh, some theory and some practice because this is not a political forum, at least not for this session. Okay, well, I mean, basically, all I really wish to do was get on here and read this document that I am really proud of accepting, where it says that there's absolutely a common law court and that they will absolutely honor it. And I have actually seen them honor it, but kind of like you said, um, when you're going against mm -hmm. one of the, their members, you know, like if you're going against a judge or a prosecutor or another attorney, they, they don't honor the process and the theory of law. Um, but if you're just going after another man, like if, if another man does you wrong, then if you struggle hard enough with the courthouse, they will absolutely allow you to open up a common law court of record. And, and you're the one who started me down that path, so I just wish to say thank you. And uh, thanks for having me on, Angela, and I'll see you next week. Okay. Thank you. Okay, next up we have, uh, let's see here, hold on one second. Um, uh, 719, you've been unmuted. Go ahead, 719. Yeah, thank you, Angie. Thanks, uh, Bill. Uh, You're Bill mentioned welcome. Bob Sh um, if anybody out there wants to uh, listen to some good Bob Schaefer, he did a, a long series on Tad's talk shoe uh, before he, right up until he passed on. Um, and uh, Tad keeps his shows at about an hour, so you can listen. Uh, anyway, he did some... Uh, did some really good shows on there. Bob Schaefer did. So I just wanted to pass that on and uh, thanks, you guys. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Okay, anybody that's uh, interested in hearing Bob Schaefer, Tad's Talk Shoe. I, I don't have the number handy since they changed the damn Talk Shoe before I would be able to go to my list of, you know, who I'm subscribed to and look. There isn't that. That feature is gone. I can't find it. Maybe it's there, but I don't know. Anyway, Tad's talk shoe. I think that's Tad with two D's, T-A-D-D. -D. Um, and you no, can just do a search for it. On, it's not two D's? Uh, not as I recall, no. Oh, okay. One D? I, I don't remember. But I'm sure if you do, you don't happen to have the call ID, do you? I have the old show number. I don't know if... if uh, it's the same. Um, That's the same. The call ID okay. is the same. That was 46256. 46256. Thank you. Okay. 46256. I just typed it into the chat. Shoe call with 
was his name? Sullivan? Bob Schaefer. Um, Bob Schaefer. S, how do you spell Schaefer? S-C-H or S-H? S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R. F-E-R, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah, one F. Thank you. Yep, S-C-H-A-F-E-R. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, my God. Wait a minute. Where's the... um? <laughs> oh, Pink Floyd is telling me go to your shows, then click following. Okay. Oh, okay, cool. It's there. Cool. There's a All Tad's right. Talk Show live now. He's on live now. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Yeah, he you. shouldn't be on Thursdays. Is it, well, as you know, if we all want to learn, we should all be able to listen to all the calls, not have to I'll, I'll compete. I don't think. I mean, whatever, doesn't matter. What was the? Can you give me the call number again, please? The ID. I didn't get it. Or okay. something. Four six two five six. I typed it in. The, Four six two five six. Thank you. Correct. Six two five six. Got it. Okay, great. Uh, let's see. Let me go back here and seven. One, I, I think what I'd I'd like people to to understand is that we're talking about shifting from law which of course is important to have your law right, but shifting from that to a practical solution that encourages the, the bad guys to come around and leave you alone. You know, there's some I, questions. I see, I see, I see officials personally, you know, because you don't just sue the organizations, you don't sue the court or the state, you also sue the individuals individually, okay? And you, you want to go after their paychecks. So you put the fear of God in them maybe that way as well. Yeah, I was going to say there was a couple of questions here in the chat. Let me look. Uh, mm there's one as guest 39 is saying, thank you, Bill, for teaching me. I'm not here to fight. I'm here to win. <sighs> Question, is it the go. paperwork, the go. court? Uh, see here. Uh, okay. One, 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 folk, one person was asking um, if it's a court of record, there can be no appeal. And then someone jumped in and said, yes, you can always use a mandamus. But well, there's no appeal. If it's a that's court of record, there's no appeal. Right. All right. Go ahead. That's correct. A court of record is the sovereign's court. You're at the top of the, of the chain already. See? So the, in a court of record, the king is sitting on the bench in his throne, so to speak. And and uh, that is, there can't be any appeal. And if a judge messes around with your court, um, your writ of error is the proper tool for uh, correcting him. However, uh, 
these judges become so arrogant at times, they have the guns and, and they have the sheriff or the marshal in their court uh, backing them up with force. So you're not always successful with that. So if what you can do, uh, think of it this way. If, if you had a business and you needed a temporary employee, you could go to an employment agency of some kind and have them send somebody over to you to work for you. Now, you do not have the authority to fire that person. You do have the authority to tell them, go away if you don't like the job he's doing for you. But he doesn't... He doesn't work for you. You don't pay him. You pay the company that he works for. And he's been sent on a mission to serve you. But if he does a bad job, you can refuse to use his services, but you cannot really fire him. So in a similar sense, the state provides a judge for your court. And uh, if you don't like the job that that judge is doing, you can discharge him, but you can't fire him. You see? So that, that's, that's the limitation you have there. But the, there's no question about it that force will always override law. And the trick is to try and get the force on your side. Uh, you should always be friendly uh, with, with the people that you're dealing with. Even if they're your adversary, you want them to at least like you. That doesn't mean you necessarily give up. You know, you don't do a lay down and let them walk all over you. But you're always friendly or cordial with them, and so that they like you, and that kind of takes some of the steam out of their hate, you know. End of speech. Okay, here's a comment. Um, wait, let me just. It says here in a previous show, you had a common law case set up to have a jury but you canceled the need for a jury at the last minute. Could you please describe that works in the court? I guess, can you please describe how that works in the court proceedings? Who makes the judgment? Well, the, the king does. Remember that you wear many hats. If, if, if you are the, first of all, you have to be the plaintiff. Okay, you have to be the one doing the suing. And if if you if you were sued first, then you would have to do a counterclaim. And uh, so, but the idea is that you, as the plaintiff, and you're in your sovereign capacity, this is your court. And so, it's it, those are the conditions under which you operate. And uh, I would never ask for a jury. Not seriously, because I don't want my authority diluted. If you, in a court of record, if you get a fully empowered jury, that jury is going to take over, and you'll have nothing to say about how that court is run once once the jury takes over. If there's no jury, you're the decision maker. Now, the other side, the defendant, can demand a jury, and of course, he's got to have one. He wants a jury of his peers. Now, peers mean a peer is somebody who's a member of the peerage. In other words, another sovereign. A citizen cannot be a juror, not not in a jury of peers. Real peers, you you have a jury which then takes over. But that's the responsibility of the defendant. Remember this, that the 
in concept, the real purpose of a jury is to uh, protect the defendant because you're you're the moving party. You're the one who says, okay, here's what I think he did wrong. Here's why it's wrong. You decree what the law of the case is. And, and then the jury, if he's called, if the jury is called by the defendant, the, the jury sits there and looks at your accusation, sits in judgment of the facts, and also looks at your law and sits in judgment of the law. And if the jury disagrees with your law or your facts, then uh, the jury will protect the defendant. On the other hand, if the jury agrees with, with the plaintiff, then, of course, the defendant now has a problem. So now, what a strategy that I have used in the past is I have demanded a jury. Now, and as a general rule, I tend to follow the civil rules, even though I don't have to with a court of record. But I do because, the, after all, the attorneys don't know what a court of record is. In fact, I've never met one that knows what a court is, even though they practice in it. But I follow the civil rules pretty much, and I'm the sovereign. I can make up any rules I want, so it's okay. And um, I'll, I'll demand a jury. Now, according to the civil rules, you have a point of no return in the case before you get to the trial. If you go past that point, then you're either you're either stuck with a jury or you have you have no or how should i say uh you cannot ask for a jury after you pass that point it's, typically it's 5 days before a trial and um so what i'll do is on the very last day i will change my mind i don't want a jury then we move into that area where, in time where the jury cannot be demanded. And that catches the defendant off guard so that he cannot ask for a jury. Even I've canceled it on the last day. He doesn't find out about it in time to ask for his own jury. He thinks he's going to get a jury. And so that's how I preserve the power for my own hands. Hopefully that clears it up for him. Are you there? Hi, Bill. Sorry, I had my mute button on. Um, I was just asking, okay. uh, but no one heard me because I was muted. Uh, if anybody has a question, <laughs> press star two. If you have a question for Bill, press star two, and that'll put your hand up, and I'll unmute you. Uh, nobody's putting their hand up. <laughs> okay. I guess nobody well, has a question. Well, that's great. <laughs> that that means either I totally don't make sense or I made total sense. Oh, you One make extreme sense. or the other. Oh, okay. Well, the the uh, uh, I'm just court of here. record is. A, yeah, a court of record is a wonderful uh, legal item. You know, you you can. Uh, it, it's very simple. It has four rules, and the rules are that it keeps a record of the proceedings. It uh, 
is proceeding according to the common law. It has the power to convict for uh, contempt or to imprison for contempt. And finally, the tribunal is independent of the magistrate. So the plaintiff can be the tribunal. In fact, he is the tribunal unless there's a jury. And it has to be a fully empowered jury, not an advisory jury, which is what you have in the normal courts these days. So uh, with those four rules, uh, that pretty well settles it as far as what, what kind of court you have. Now, the, uh, the state Bill. likes to have a, a court of, uh, uh, have a court of equity. That's what they like, because then the judge has full, full power to do anything he wants as compared to a court of record where he has no power. So anyway, you were want to say something, Angela? Yeah, there is. A, there are two more hands up. So when you're ready for more questions, okay. we'll go ahead. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Next up is um, three two three seven zero seven. You've been unmuted. Yeah, I'd like to ask this question. Yeah, thank you for uh, allowing me to ask the question. If the courts don't operate as advertised, then how do we as a people receive remedy and are and receive uh, some kind of compensation for our losses when they are lawless? They don't follow the law, regardless if we do, let's say, court of record, uh, equity, admiralty, maritime, whatever their administrative law. We, I know that we need some kind of accountability and enforceability, but to use the power of the pen and they kind of just uh, snub their noses at what we're doing, how can we truly get our remedy if they are lawless and they're not following their own oath and or the laws or their own constitution, which they allegedly swore an oath to? Well, this is what I call a real-world question. You know, we have our theories. We know how it works. The, the, uh, the theory is very clear. The statutes and codes are usually pretty clear. You know, the rules of court are pretty clear. But then you get into this intellectual corruption. And because they have the guns, they sometimes can enforce it, and you're, you're powerless. And I can tell you that if everybody up and down the line hates you, then you're going to lose no matter how right you are. So in practical terms, um, there's no guarantees here. What I, I have suggested on the website, there's an article on the website. When you go to 1215.org and you click on Start Here, the second page that pops up, there's an article in there about attitude. And basically what I tell people in that article is that you got to make friends with your enemy. That doesn't mean your pals, but you want them to like you because it's harder for them to move against you if they like you. If you get them to hate you, if you go in with a, an attitude like uh, get me if you can type of thing, which a lot of people do, then uh, that increases the hate factor. That gives them more energy to sin against you. So in, in real world terms, uh, there's a kind of like, uh, uh, like the tide ebbing in, in and out on the ocean. Uh, there's a, 
there's kind of like this invisible uh, dividing line between you and the enemy, and the closer you can push the line back toward the enemy, in other words, get them to like you, the more you get them to like you, then the better the chance is that you will succeed. Now, you want to be able to marshal all the force you can on your side. So uh, one of the techniques is to run a, a good case. In other words, get your, get your stuff right and make it clear to the judge that you got it all right and you're going to appeal it if he violates it. Anytime he violates it and, and does something that he shouldn't in the courtroom, he has to worry about what the appellate court might think. And the fear of going to the appellate court for the judge is greater than the fear he has once you actually go to court and <laughs> go to the appellate court. You know, it's the, the possibility that you might. So you can control the judge that way. But there, there's no guarantees in this business. And so, and sometimes some judges are so bad, you can't even stay in the same system. Sometimes you have to go outside the system in order to find the force necessary to straighten these guys out. It's like one guy, uh, I remember this one guy uh, was being uh, badly treated by the system. He was in jail. And uh, a friend went to the provost marshal of the army at the nearest uh, military base and made a complaint. And the provost marshal looked at that and he said, nope, couldn't do anything there. Did give some explanation as to why he couldn't. So the guy came back a second time and this time he made the corrections plus a few things. The provost marshal looked at this and he ripped off the front cover of the front page of that little report. He says, this is all I need. And the next thing you know, he calls up the clerk and he says to, he says to the clerk, he wants to have a copy of all the records. And the clerk refused to do it. So he told the clerk, if you don't have the records to me by a certain time, I'll send the military down there and they'll take those records. So he got the records. Then when he looked at the records and saw the abuse, he then called up the uh, the sheriff's department and said, you better cut this guy loose. And they, they told him they weren't going to. So they let him know, well, tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, my men will be down there and they'll break him out of jail if he's not there. Well, when they got down there, the sheriff had let the guy out. Okay? So it, it came down to a question of force. And the military does have the authority to go into the civilian arena upon proper invitation to straighten out a problem. Now, they're reluctant to do that. And because the military, I think, in recent decades has become more political, that may be more difficult to do. But the, the authority is there. So you're really asking a question of, well, how, do you, how can you line up these forces? Uh, there's a variety of ways. There's the private attorney general procedure. Um, there's suing the individuals, you know. Don't, don't sue the government, sue the individual. Say, he's a bad guy and you want to attack his paycheck. So I, I can't give you a formula on how to do it. All I can say is, is that you're going to have to size up your, your options on how to bring force into this 
you know, the ultimate force is called revolution. You know, and some countries deteriorate to the point that is the only answer. I personally don't feel that we're at that stage yet, but it's almost as if the government's inviting us to do that. So, yeah, so it I sounds know, like, you like then, that. Yeah, it sounds like then what we need to do if, if we go and sue them personally in their personal capacity, then, and I've heard about something in the Midwest where several people did that and tried to lean up some judges, and they were all, they've all found themselves in jail. So it sounds like we have to be uh, relentless and just go from one process to the next to the next until they see that we mean business. We're not going to stop. And we, we don't give in, and we're going to keep coming until mm-hmm. we receive our remedy. Is that correct? Yes, that's pretty much it. And that's, what, that's how I started off this session. I was saying that we're really talking about attrition. You know, uh, is it worth spending $10,000 for them to collect $200? You know, you, you want to make it expensive okay. for them. And uh, the more expensive it is, because that, that's the one thing that they cannot avoid. When you sue them, Every time an attorney writes a paper, it costs them $1,000 or somewhere in that range, okay? So that they notice. And they can't get around that because if they try to get around that, they won't have any attorneys. (laughs) Okay, so the weight of the record. I heard one time something about the weight of the record has everything to do with just keep being relentless. And sooner or later, somebody in the system is going to see that this individual judge or uh, attorney, clerk, or whoever's causing all the disruption and not following their own codes, laws, rules, constitutions, and or court of record, then what ends up happening is somebody within that system is going to find in favor of one of the people? Well, there was this one case that I was helping a lady with uh, she was fighting her uh, driver's license issues. You know, she felt she didn't need a driver's license because she was not engaged in commerce. And the judge was really abusive. And that judge, in the middle of the case, got uh, got hired by the federal government. So he he quit his state job and he went over to the federal government and... Uh, you know, took up his job there. And while while doing that, he ordered that the case that he was working on, her case, be transferred over to where he was in the federal court. So the, the battle went on, and it finally reached a point where he ordered her to not file, uh, well, no, before that, uh, he was, she felt he was so abusive that she sued him in a new federal case. So now she had two cases in the federal court. And it, he, she was suing that judge. So the judge issued an order ordering her, her not to file any more papers in either case. So she went ahead and filed another paper, which she felt like she had the right to do. So he sent a couple of marshals out and they arrested her. They brought her into court. And he convicted her of two counts of um, contempt of court. And he ordered her into the the prison. 
and they immediately put her into solitary confinement, and she stayed there about two months. In the meantime, her son did a habeas corpus. In fact, her son did seven habeas corpuses, and on the same day, he filed a habeas corpus into the state trial court, the state appellate court, the state supreme court, the federal uh, trial court, the federal appeal court, the federal circuit court, and the federal supreme court. All seven, all on the same day. About a week went by after he filed them. And remember, she was in, in solitary confinement all this time. He pulls her, the, the judge pulls her out of court and he says, Mrs. So-and-so, he says, I think, you've, uh, uh, I, I think you've learned your lesson now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to order you to be released and the record purged. Okay? <laughs> so now we don't know exactly what happened, but we speculate that what happened was somebody had a talk with that judge because in that habeas corpus, the guy cited a half dozen different violations of rights that this judge had done. It must have got some attention somewhere, and somebody must have told him, you better do what you can to quiet down this case or you'll be in trouble. You know, And so that's how he did it. Now, there was yeah. an attorney who had watched those proceedings, and he really, really was upset about this judge when he realized what happened. And he approached her, and he promised, or he offered to go against that judge pro bono in her behalf. But she was so burned out from that, those two months in, in solitary confinement that she just wanted to just let the whole problem go, which she did. So nothing ever happened after that. But uh, getting back to your point, yes, there are people in there who are honest. They really are. If you put in good paperwork, sometimes these people behind the scenes will talk to them. You'll never know who did what, but it happens. And I have seen judges do complete turnarounds mysteriously. I don't think that the, uh, the leopard changed its spots, okay? I think what happened is somebody had a talk with them and, and there was a greater force behind the scenes because the individual what had a genuine case it wasn't just frivolous it was genuine and that judge who was abusive apparently got talking to by somebody we don't know who okay last question if you mind jurisdictional issues how can the judges commissioners or magistrates hold us in their jurisdiction if we're one of the people and we start our case up in a court of record and they don't follow the court of record, how can they hold that their jurisdiction, whether it's administrative or equity, when we go in in a court of record? Well, see, your question tells me you missed my point at the beginning of your question when I was answering it or at the beginning of this session here. The thing is, is that if you have a court of record, the judge is absolutely illegal. He's just like a robber robbing somebody on the street. He can't do that, not lawfully. So to correct them, you do a writ of error. And that's one of the purposes right, of I a writ that. of error. Yeah, well, 
that's the answer to your question. You got to do a writ of error. Now, if they're going to totally ignore it, which does happen, then you you take the next step. You find him for contempt of court. You have a contempt, you motion for contempt, or in the case of if you're in front of the judge and he abuses the, the rules, then that's a direct contempt, in which case you can just issue a judgment immediately on his contempt. But you, you, you have a progression here where you raise the fines and, and after maybe uh, three or four contempts, you might issue a bench warrant for his arrest. If you're in the federal courts, that might not work so well because the marshals work for the judge. But in the state courts, you have a separate entity called the sheriff. And if you can show the sheriff where the law was broken, the sheriff will arrest the judge. So, or at least uh, put pressure on the judge. And I've seen where the judge's uh, a bench warrant got issued, but the the judge never got arrested, but he changed his attitude, which is all we wanted in the first place. We're not really trying to arrest the judge. We just want him to play his part correctly. So they, if necessary, as I said before, you may have to go to a different forum, a different court system, one that supersedes. So again, if you have a state judge problem, take it to the federal court because he's violating due process. If, if it's a federal judge, you can take him to a state court because he's violating the protections that you as one of the people of the state are entitled to have. This, the job of the state is to protect its people. So uh, this is a, a very fluid situation. You really don't know where their breaking point is. But certainly so what, a big point, a major, a major point is you burn their budgets, okay? <laughs> okay. Would Make I be a, correct to say that if by using the sheriffs, you're saying that you believe in the separation of powers doctrine is real, and they follow it? Yes. Yes, it is real. Uh, there's, a, there's certainly an interaction of a political nature between them. But yes, it is real. And, and remember, the, the sheriff's job assuming he isn't drinking beer with the judge after hours, the sheriff's job is to enforce the law. So if you can, if you can show him, and we have an example of that on the website, it, where in the Kicho case, there's a bench warrant there where we lay out exactly what the problem was, and it was after that that we noticed a really, really tremendous change in the judge's attitude. Okay, so the sheriff must have had a talk okay. with him. Okay, well, thank you very much for asking that question. I don't want to hold other people from asking that question. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's see here. Next up is 951. You've been unmuted. 951-785. You have Hi. a question for our guest speaker? How are you? Hi. Yes, I do. Hi, is that you, Dallas? This is Dallas. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Welcome. I was on the other line. I have to hang up on the other line. Yeah, oh, busy night tonight. Um, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. I uh, had, a, had a question that uh, for Bill. That that that. I guess I was listened to your. Uh, it is a four-part series on uh, Show Me the Tax Law on YouTube. 
which I, I actually loved that song in the beginning. Um, <laughs> Show me a law. I've heard that before. It was really good. Um, but uh, you know, I've looked at a lot of things, and I, you know, I just have to be impressed with a lot of things you've been through, which is really some of the things I look at. People have actually done something and and been through been, been through the uh, the hoops on everything. And uh, there was one statement that you made in the. I think it was in uh, part three, I think it was, when you're talking about the income tax. And, um, and you mentioned that your, your, uh, your gatekeeper, your silver bullet is 26 U.S.C. section 7806. And uh, right. I, I guess maybe I just won't see what you're seeing in that section because it it doesn't seem to apply to the actual statute, to all the peripheral ancillary things around it. So why would that? Why would that be the gatekeeper? And I don't understand. Well, uh, seventy-eight oh six is the one. In a nutshell, it's the one that says that the rest of the code is not law. Okay. But it doesn't say the code. It says the ancillary items around the code. Or the statute, the laws. It says the laws. And it says because uh, um, it says no inference, implication, or presumption can be made about all these ancillary things around it. The side notes, the bottom notes, the uh, the titles. Uh, those things are not the law. It's just ancillary items. It's just like like getting a a hitch on the back of your van. You don't really need it because it's not part of the van, but it's yeah, yeah you can't have it. You know, it's like an option. And that's All right, kind of, let, let me read it to you. Kind of how I see it. And actually, I talked to, I spoke with the, um, uh, I called the Law Revision Council in Washington, D.C. And I remember speaking with the attorney. I've spoken with him like several times, but I uh, spoke with him regarding that. And he was telling me that, yeah, that's just like the title, what, what it's entitled, or the note that's on the side, or the note that's at the bottom. But the actual things he said, but that section does not include the actual statute itself. Well, you, either they've changed it since, or you did not quote it no, correctly. No, the same thing. And it doesn't well, even have. I'll read it. it doesn't even have a regulation that implements it. I'll I'll read it here. It says section seventy eight oh six construction of title, and. I will, I will go to subsection B, as in boy. It says arrangement and classification, period. No inference, implication, or presumption of legislative construction shall be drawn or made by reason of the location or grouping of any particular section or provision or portion of this title. There's more, but that's, that's good right there. Now, so... If somebody says to me that you know that that uh, I have to obey some rule, whatever it may be, and I say to them, "Where is it?" and they say, "Oh, you can find it in Title 26 at Section so and so." Well, this says that no inference or implication or presumption of legislative construction shall be drawn or made by reason of the location or grouping of any particular section. So they cannot cite Title 26 as my obligation 
because a presumption of legislative construction is just an indirect way of saying law. You can't assume that what's in the code is law. That's how I interpret it, B. Oh, well, it doesn't really say that, that no implication or presumption can be made of the law. It just says of how they constructed it, how they put it together, well, how they rearranged it or arranged it. It's almost like when I, I remember talking with a lot of people over the years, and they say, oh, Title 26 is, is not positive law, so it doesn't apply. Oh, that doesn't mean what not, not positive law means. Positive law means that it's exactly the same that Congress did it. Nothing changed, not even a period or punctuation change. If the law revision council has to okay. rearrange it, then it's not positive law, it's not positive from, from, uh, from Congress. So, and everyone really well, misunderstood that. Well, if you go to the uh, particular page on the website that deals with 26 U.S.C. 7806, uh, there is I'm a link at, at right the now. bottom. There's a link at the bottom that says other case law related to 26 U.S.C. So you have the first one okay, here. Okay, well, I'm not looking at the annotated code. Is okay, there, there and there are... The annotated code? No, it shows the cases. Cases related yeah, to 26 U.S.C. No, I'm not talking about annotated code. I'm talking about actual cases where th that were decided by the courts. Is there a website link okay. to that? Because I'm at the government publishing office right now. No, we're not. I'm not on the publishing. I'm I'm on 1215.org. If okay. you go to 1215.org right. yeah. and you look up 26 U.S.C. 7806 and you go to that page, you will see at the bottom of the page, it says other case law related to 26 U.S.C. 7806. And if you click on that link, that'll take you to a page which has a list of cases. There's 13 cases there on that page. Each one of them in one way or another dealt with the meaning of 7806. And if you read every one of those cases, they all kind of try to avoid admitting that it that uh, it means what I say it means. You can see how the the court dances around that issue, but there's no question about it. Okay. They are yeah. dancing around it. Okay. We'll go through that. Now, how, um, how do I get to that on your on your website, the uh, 7806? I'm I'm at on the blue page there with uh, all the links on it. The California Mission to the Union and Court of Record. Is the link on that page for 7806? Uh, I believe not. Uh, it would be on another page, but the easiest way to get to it is to just go to the um, homepage, 1215.org, and then search for it. Yes, I'm right there right now. Okay. All right. And then uh, do you see at the top where it says, search this website? Um, okay, I see it in the link. Search this website. Yes, I do see that. Oh, I just searched for click, it there. Okay. Click on that. Click on that and type in 26 USC 7806. Let me know when you get the results. Uh, 
Uh, give me a lot of uh, 1215.org. Okay, I see it there. Okay. It's a, it's a, and, and a the top green one, white page. You like the, the, the top one says Internal Revenue Code is not law, right? Yes, Internal Revenue Code is not law. Yes, I see it right there. Okay, click on, click on that. Uh, it's not a link, but at the bottom it says more law notes. Is that the link there? No. And other no, case law. No. I see on the bottom. That's it. Click on other case law. Other case law at the very bottom lower left. There's on a blue page. You There's a lot of links on it. There it is. 13 uh, cases. Great. I will, All of I will go through that. Yeah. I will and go so that, you read, but read remember that. this. The Supreme Court does not want to directly say, oh, the Title 26 no good, right? They're not going to dump the system if they can avoid it. You understand that, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. So when you read this, when you read these cases, you have to be sensitive to the nuances of these cases. But if you are, you'll see how they kind of acknowledge it, but then they try to find a, a reason not having thing to do with that, you know, in order to come to their decision. But um, so they get a little fuzzy on how they do it. But you can you you can see how they're avoiding actually coming out and saying, oh yeah, you're right, it's, this is not law, whatever. So um, that's why I collected those cases together. I wanted I I found every case I could in the federal system that dealt with Section 7806. Okay. Now I know that I will look when, I got my pa when I got my passport and they wanted to have my social security number, in that little space I put exempt per 26 U.S.C. 7806. Oh, See, the passport uh, I, I've had two passports. I've had two passports. Um, you know, I renewed the passport, and when I first went, I went to Los Angeles at 11,000 Wilshire, and I had my internal revenue code books with me, and uh, I was going to Italy, <laughs> and I left it blank, and they said, oh, you have to fill this in. I said, why? Well, it's a law. I said, what law? Well, it's the Internal Revenue Service. I, I plopped my uh, books down in front of her, and there were a lot of people in line. We were outside because it was a long line. And she looked at me. She looked at the line. She goes, well, take it inside. They'll handle it in there. But no one ever asked me. So I never, ever put it on there. And then I found out. I called the Department of State in Washington, D.C., and they told me, no, you don't have to put that in there. That's just the – we're the Department of State. That's the IRS. You don't have to put it in there. Right. Uh, it's, it's not required. And she said, That's right. that if you end up uh, doing anything and the IRS comes after you because of it, then you'll have to deal with it then. But you don't have to. And I, I never did. I never put a – I didn't even put anything in. I just left it blank. Yeah, that's fine. In my case, I gave them a justification to ignore me. But that, that's fine what you did. Yeah, and then I renewed it. They never asked me for it. I never ever – I had it uh, right. the full term, and then I renewed it a second time. Never asked me for it. Mm -hmm. They did the same thing to me at the DMV, California DMV. 
And but mm-hmm. uh, uh, they pretty much forced me to get. I had to get a California ID because of taking care of my dad. And uh, and they kind of forced me to uh, put it on there. But I showed them all the all the uh, all of the uh, laws and regulations that showed that I was not required to give them that. Yeah. It didn't apply to me. The what 42 USC section 405 that they put on the back of the application. Right. And I told them I. Right. I'm not, I'm not required, I, that doesn't apply to me, that only applies in the federal area. Well, yeah, and they told me, it took me three and a half hours just to get that ID because it would sure. let me do it. But finally they told me in order to get it, I had to give it to them. So I wrote everything on there on the application mm-hmm. and on my card. Well, then you I, can, I have, like you're talking you talked about, without prejudice, I have all rights reserved in my signature on the card. Yeah, but then you have to follow through on that. and so. Uh, did you sue them afterwards? No, I I didn't want to go there because of okay. uh, all that. I have to take care of my dad, and uh, so sure. as a 91 year World War II catastrophe, they say, well, I didn't want to go through all of that. So I just uh, all well, I did see, was they, I just well, they have they have full time troublemakers. They they have full time troublemakers. You're part time. We have to move on, gentlemen. We have another okay, person with their hand up. All right. Thanks, okay, Dallas. Thank you, um, thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Yep, you're welcome. Anytime. Uh, one second. Let me just. Okay, the next person up is WW. Go ahead. You've been unmuted. Do you have a question Hi. for our speaker? Hi. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Howdy. Hello. Hello. Bill, I was Hello. wondering uh, on uh, starting a new case at the Supreme Court where the state of California was sued. Uh, any news on, on that process? Well, we haven't accomplished anything in the Supreme Court of the United States yet uh, along those lines. But the, the federal constitution does specifically say that whenever the state is a party, that the uh, the Supreme Court is the court of original jurisdiction. Can you can you tell me uh, the process and procedure on how I would do that? Well, yeah, um, there there is a case law which supports the idea that an individual can go to the Supreme Court and sue a state. The Supreme Court is a trial court at that point, not an appellate court. And so you would you would go in there and, and uh, it follows the same rules as the um, as the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Title 28. That's what they will follow there. But you can have your court of record. Uh, we haven't tested these concepts yet. Uh, I've been waiting for a good case to come along, and I haven't found one yet. But uh, whenever a solid case does come along, then what I intend to do is to test these theories. But from what I can tell, we are solid on it because the uh, the Constitution right there says that the United States Supreme Court is the court of original jurisdiction whenever the state is a party. 
So that's pretty clear to me. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Okay. Is there another question? Okay. Here? Yeah, let's see here. Um, uh, nope, I'll that's say, it. Let me, okay, well, let me let me expand oh. on that a little bit here. If you if you give me a moment, okay. uh, I'm going to bring up on my computer a little more information on that subject. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, just give me a moment here. I'm homing in on it. Uh, Okay. Okay. Basically, there are some cases that support uh, this idea of going to uh, going to the Supreme Court as an individual. Uh, for example, um, well, we start with Article Three, Section Two Dash Two of the Constitution which says, here's a quote, in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which the state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. Okay, period. So there's your authority to take it to the United States Supreme Court. Then uh, there's other cases, for example, uh, let's see. The special assumption. Okay. Uh, amendment 11. Oh, amend, Amendment 11 says a person may be a citizen for some purposes. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not the amendment. That's a case. Field versus Adrian. A-D-R-E-O-N. Seven. M as in Mary, D as in David. I think that's uh, Maryland 209, 7MD209. And it says a person may be a citizen for some purposes and not a citizen for other purposes. And then, um, uh, let's see, Amendment 11 says, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subject of any foreign state. Okay, so basically what they're saying there is that if you're a citizen of one state, you cannot sue another state. And there was a case before the 11th Amendment where after the Civil War, somebody sued and won and it scared the bejeebers out of all the bureaucrats so they made the 11th Amendment, which basically said that a citizen of one state cannot sue another state. And then uh, later on, a case got up to the uh, Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court extended that amendment. They said, well, no citizen can sue his own state or another state. Can't sue at all. But they analyzed it further. They went deeper into it. They went into the legislative history and all that. 
and they looked at the intent of the 11th Amendment. And the, the Supreme Court determined that the intent of the 11th Amendment was to protect the treasury of the state. The state, was, the state treasury was immune from attachment. So they said two things. First of all, they said you can sue the state for anything as long as it does not impact the state treasury. The second thing they said was the employees of the state are not protected by the 11th Amendment. So you can sue the judges. Okay? So that was the two effects of it. And uh, then there's also another thing. Uh, another purpose of the 11th Amendment was to protect the dignity of the state. So it was um, uh, the, the case of Hess versus Walsh versus, no, Hess and Walsh versus the Port Authority Trans-Hudson Corporation. That's H-E-S-S and Walsh, W-A-L-S-H. The number was 513 U.S. 30, 513 U.S. 30. And they, they said the 11th Amendment's twin reasons for being the state's dignity and their financial solvency. Neither is implicated here. First, there is no genuine threat to the dignity of the state of Washington. And second, there is, oh, no, that's, that's commentary outside the quote. So I read the quote to you that it was the dignity and the financial sovereignty. So as long as the dignity of the state is not at risk, you're not saying they're dirty, rotten skulls, <laughs> scoundrels, <laughs> and or you're not impacting the, that. Now, um, Chief Justice Marshall, um, in his uh, in Cohen's versus Virginia, C O H E N S, um, that's 19 U S. And Chief Justice Marshall said he attributed adoption of the 11th Amendment not to objections to subjecting states to suits per se, but to well-founded concerns about creditors being able to maintain suits in federal courts for payment and stated his view that the 11th Amendment did not bar suits against the states under federal question jurisdiction and did not in any case reach suits against the state by its own citizens. So that was his opinion that uh, you could sue the uh, state. And uh, in the uh, Chisholm case, I think it was uh, Chisholm versus uh, Georgia, and that's two U.S. four one nine. And there, the, uh, that dealt with um, the sovereignty of the people, okay? And they said there that, uh, that sovereignty is even appropriately applied to the newly adopted constitution. It rests with the people rather than with state government. So they were, the, the, the federal court was saying that the uh, the state has no sovereignty because the sovereignty is in the people themselves. The state gets its authority from the people. Okay. So, um, so as long as you're not making a claim against the treasury of the state, 
nor the dignity of the state, then you can sue the state. Like maybe you want to get them off your back, you know, you want them to stop moving against you. If I were suing the state, I would also be suing the judge personally because I'd like the money that's in his paycheck. Okay. Uh, And here, in one case, let's see what case this was. Uh, I've got a quote here. Yeah, Cohen's versus Virginia, which I mentioned before. Um, It says, I'll read this. It is said that admitting the court has jurisdiction where a state is a party, still that jurisdiction must be original and not appellate because the Constitution declares that in cases in which the state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction and in all other cases, appellate jurisdiction. The answer is that this provision was merely intended to prevent states from being sued in the inferior courts of the Union that the Supreme Court is to have appellate jurisdiction in all cases arising under the Constitution, laws, and treaties of the United States, that where in such a case a state sues in its own courts, it must be understood as renouncing its privilege or exemption and to submit itself to the appellate power of this court, since if the jurisdiction in this class of cases be concurrent, it cannot be exercised originally in the Supreme Court, wherever the state chooses to commence the suit in its own courts. Nor is there any hardship in this construction. The state cannot be sued in its own courts, but if it commences a suit there against the citizen and a question arises in that suit under the Constitution, laws, and treaties of the Union, there must be a power in this court to revise the decision of the state court in order to produce uniformity in the construction of the the Constitution and so forth. So anyway, what it's saying is that, yeah, you can sue the state, okay? And you sue it in the United States. Supreme Court. So the Cohen case is a pretty good case. Okay. Um, There's also a provision in the uh, Constitution. And it says, here's what it says. This is um, Article 3, Section 2-1. It says, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and councils, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states. Anyway, that's in the Constitution. So the judicial power is available to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution or the laws of the United States. So if you can see where a law was violated or the Constitution of the United States is violated by the state, then you can borrow the judicial power of the United States for your court. Remember, your court is your court. You own it. And when you file, when you uh, 
make a claim and uh, and the, the state is a party. Well, the basic definition is that the a court is the the um, person and suit of the sovereign, and you're you are the sovereign. So you're suing. You've created your court. You own your court, but by yourself, you and your court have no power. However, the Constitution of the United States says that if you have a court that's proceeding using the uh, Constitution and the laws of the United States, then you can borrow the power of the United States, the judicial power, to run your court. And that, that elevates your the power of your court. So in a nutshell, yes, you can sue the state and you can sue them in the United States District Court, or I meant to say the United States Supreme Court. So that's the end of my little speech on that subject, unless there's a question. Not at the moment. Anybody want to ask a question, press star two. That'll put your hand up. Um, Otherwise, continue on. Well, the uh, the basic purpose of this session. Oh, you said something. Okay, the basic nope, purpose of I this didn't. session. <laughs> There's a delay, like a two-second delay between you know when we start and stop talking. So take that sure. into consideration. Sorry. Yeah. Well, there um, basically, uh, we're finding that there's a coordination of the judges nationwide, where they really want to get the amateurs out of the courtroom. They don't want to hear from people who are representing themselves, and so we have to find a way to to somehow slow down government at least slow down the abuse of authority by certain officials. And I find that what's needed is a practical solution. And that is the one thing that's important to everybody is money. So if you can somehow get them to redirect their spending, if they can spend all their money on attorneys dealing with you, they're not gonna wanna deal with you. and if you do not give them any cause to prosecute you, then they don't want to deal with it. So the first thing you do is you settle your case. doesn't matter if you don't win. You've made your objections, and now you go with the system. You sign anything they want you to sign and so forth. You can even sign a statement saying you won't sue them. doesn't matter because you can reserve your rights. And um, then once it's all through and they, they, they're they happy with how the case turned out, well, you're not happy. And so now you can turn around and sue them. And you sue them, obviously you want to win your case, but even if you don't win your case, you want to run their costs up. And like I said, 
does it make sense that they would spend $10,000 in order to collect a $100 fine? They might do it once, but if you keep coming back at them with your lawsuit, you settle with them so that they hardly got anything, and then you sue them, they're going to notice that, and they might decide to leave you alone. And if they'll leave me alone, I'll leave them alone. That's that's how I look at it. You know, I'm I'm not there as a rebel against the system. I'm there because I want to be left alone. I want you guys to know it. And that that's in a nutshell is is uh, what it's all about. Okay, we have his hand up. A hand up again. Um, let's see. Three okay. two three. You've been unmuted. Go ahead. Three two three. Yes. Thank you. I, I'd like to ask a couple questions about utilizing something that's called within the law of the case and what do we use, uh, let's say, UCCs and statutes, codes, rules, constitutions, uh, common law uh, terms like uh, torts and replevin and things like that. Do we use all of that stuff in the law of the case and will they abide by it if we do that? Well, taking the second question first, there's no guarantee they're going to abide anything. That's like saying, "Do I can I give you an absolute guarantee that you won't be robbed as you walk down the the uh, sidewalk?" You know, there are bad guys out right, there. Right, I should have yeah. yeah, but on your first question, um, the the law of the case is based on the the Supreme Court decision that basically it said that the decree of the sovereign makes law. So the people are sovereign. We have plenty of case law on that. And the decree of the sovereign makes law. That means that that's the law. So in the section of your complaint where you decree what the law of the case is, you steal the wording from the statutes and codes, but the authority comes from you. And that is the law, and it's anything you say it is. And uh, if uh, you only want to use those statutes and codes that have some relationship to whatever problem you're trying to solve, remember this, that in a court of record, you're following common law procedure, but you're decreeing whatever laws you want, that as you follow the common law procedure, you're enforcing these laws that you decreed. See, that's why the jury, if there is a jury, is going to judge the law as well as judge the facts, just in case you're a crazy sovereign. <laughs> so if we use, let's say, a code or or a UCC, does that mean that it could also be used against me or is it because I'm the sovereign, I decree the law, that means I'm enforcing those laws against the defendant or the plaintiff or whomever I'm going up against. And the courts, I know I, I should have rephrased the second question, but this one has to do with can those USC codes and or uh, the UCCs be used against me equally if I'm trying to enforce them against the other side? Well, if it could be used against 
me, I wouldn't use, I wouldn't decree it as a law. The law doesn't exist until some sovereign decrees it. So don't decree something that can be okay, used against so, you. So what, Look, I mean, when you, what I'm when trying you, to ask is, if I put in, if I put in a certain USC code, and I want to enforce it against the opposite side, then you're saying that then it's equally they could also enforce that same code against me. Is that correct? No, that's not correct. It's your court. You're the judge. It can't be. In, it cannot be enforced unless you decide to enforce it against yourself. I see. So see what the, then, the thing. The point that you're. The point that you're missing is that you're the boss. Okay, you're, you're the boss. You you filed your lawsuit. You're the sovereign of the court. Think of yourself as a king sitting on your throne, and you've got all these people in the in the room called the courtroom, and they're all secondary to you. While your case is running, you are the king. So who's who's to buck the king? Well, then what stops me from going in and just declaring uh, a case that I win my case against me and anything anybody else says or does uh, is void? Well, have you not heard my lecture about pink shoes? Uh, I believe I might have. Well, I'll repeat it here. See, I, I have a law. Okay, thank you. It, it is illegal for anybody to wear pink shoes in my presence. And when I see pink shoes, it offends me so much that I have a death penalty attached to that law. Now, things in our society are such that if I kill the person right away, that might not work out so well for me. But I could take them to court, and I could enforce that law, you know. You will be executed for wearing those pink shoes in front of me. The problem that I've run into is that this person might call for a jury, and the jury sits in judgment of both the facts and the law. So even if he did wear pink shoes, there's apparently a possibility that those 12 sovereigns won't agree with my law. They might not like it. So as a result, I haven't executed very many people. In fact, I haven't executed any people for wearing pink shoes in my presence. But that doesn't mean I don't think my law is valid, okay? Now, I realize that's a stupid extreme, okay. but... But the thing is, is that I have another law which says that if I'm walking down the street minding my own business, totally unaware of anything else, just simply walking along, and somebody sneaks up behind me, knocks me down, breaks a couple bones, and so forth, I think if I took him to court and decreed in my law that he should go to jail for 30 days and reimburse me for all my medical expenses, I have a feeling the probability is pretty high that a jury of 12, if he calls a jury, will agree with me. What do you think? And if he, and if he doesn't call a jury, then it's decreed as then, what it's decreed as, and no. therefore judgment is based on that. Well, if, if the jury doesn't write the judgment, I will. Okay.
So you see, the, the, the thing about a, a court, it is a person and suit of the sovereign. That's your basic definition. You're the sovereign. You're suing. You and your own person have moved forward and sued somebody. You just created your court. Okay? And now that person yes. ultimately could demand a jury. But if he doesn't demand a jury, you being the king of the court, you'll make the decision. Now, judges have absolutely no authority to make any decision in a court of record. They can advise you. You can think of the judge as the king's counselor, but he has no authority to make decision unless you grant it to him. Okay, thank you. Now, I have a couple other questions about uh, discovery. Do In your court of record, is discovery a good thing to do and one and two in past cases i've done the courts have refused me all my discovery how do i enforce that discovery well first of all if somebody did you wrong you know what they did to you and you make up your affidavits or you make up your testimony those are the facts. I never do discovery because I know what happened to me and I make my accusations. I don't I don't need discovery. I don't need any more facts than what I got. So I don't force them to produce information that might show that they're not guilty. You know? I, I'm not gonna I'm not going to push the point of discovery. I don't need it. I really don't need it. And if I win my, my case, there's enough money there. I really don't need all that discovery. See, when you're okay. the plaintiff, Last question. Discovery, discovery really works to the advantage of the defendant because he's wants to, he wants to get information that maybe the plaintiff refused to disclose. The, the plaintiff's trying to get a conviction and is not disclosing all the information. But when you're the plaintiff... You don't need discovery because you have all the facts already about what they did wrong, and you want your compensation for your injuries. Okay, thank you. Um, and the last question is, do you believe that uh, we should try to get the local uh, civics back into the classrooms? Absolutely, but you have to understand and what the definition of the word civics. Wait a minute, you got to understand what the definition of civics is. Civics is that branch of political philosophy dealing with personal rights. Has nothing to do with government. Okay. Okay. All right. So Thank yes, you. they used yes. To, they used to teach they used to teach civics in schools. And then back around the 1850s, they came out in Chicago, I think it was, the Chicago area. They established, the government established the first mandatory public school. And the parents were opposed to it, so they brought out the military and they escorted the first kids to the first mandatory public school. And from the 1850s to the 1950s, as each generation went through, they phased out the subject of civics and they replaced it with a new subject called American government. Then around the 1950s, 100 years later, they 
became more honest and they started calling these courses American government. And that's how they quit teaching people what their rights are. You know, everything that deals with a court of record, that whole process could be taught in one semester. It's not that complicated. And, uh, but you see, you know, people like you who know your rights are troublesome to the bureaucrats. They don't like that. So since we have trusted the bureaucrats to run the school systems, they very carefully have changed it so that anybody who goes through our school system will be totally ignorant of what their rights are or how the system works. So yes, it should, we should bring civics back into schools, but that's a political question rather than a legal question. And it's going to take political action. You're going to have to, you know, pressure the powers that be. And hopefully you can manipulate enough votes so that, um, that you can vote some of these people out of office who don't, won't put uh, civics back into the classroom. So you asked a political question rather okay, than a legal thank you. question. You're welcome. Okay, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And, and thank you, Angela, for letting me ask questions. And, and thank you, Bill, for uh, You're welcome. my question. <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> well, Bill, yeah. we've done the two hours. Okay. Do you have any, well, parting, there... any parting remarks or comments you'd like to make? No, I think I, I've already committed myself badly enough. <laughs> okay, and again, the uh, website is 1215.org. Correct. That's the number 1215.org. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I and again, I, I'd, I'd like it if people would download the uh, information into their own computers, and that, that copy left link that's in the lower left corner of the home page uh, has a description of the procedure. It's all free. And uh, so I'd like to perpetuate this information. I will do it myself. I'm going to copy your whole website. So I okay. hope everybody Great. else does too. It's got a lot of good information. Thanks so much, Bill. I appreciate you coming on. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, what should they do? do? Can they get you by going to your website, or do you want to give out an email, or what? You can give my email. It's the letter X all by itself, followed by the at symbol, followed by 1215.org. It's X at 1215.org. So yeah, X at 1215.org. Very good. Thanks, yeah. thanks a now, lot, Bill. Now I appreciate little, you coming on. Well, there's a little problem with that. There's a little problem with that email, and that is that I get two to three hundred emails a day. <laughs> so it's quite a task to keep up with the email. Okay. Well, we'll take that into consideration and understand that we won't sure. get a, a response back right away. Maybe not at all. <laughs> and if that happens after about a week, they should email sure. you again. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. You know, if I if I ignore you. I really am not ignoring you. It's just that I probably missed it. Right. I or know that. The trash real folder. Well. You know, it might, it might have gone into the, the uh, spam folder, you know, that can happen. 
So uh, mm-hmm. I do try to keep up on it, but I do miss them from time to time also. Yep, me too. Sheer, All right, very volume. good. <laughs> All right. I know what it is. Thank like. you, Angela. All right, thanks, Bill. Uh, nice talking with you. I hope we do it again in the not-too-distant future. Keep us okay, updated on what's going on. Maybe you'll come across that super-duper case you've been waiting for that you can pursue in the courts. That would be sure, nice. Sure. <laughs> All okay. right, everybody. It's been fun. Thanks, Bill. Uh, I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Let's see. Next week, we have JC and Charmin on. And I don't know who's after that. I'm trying to get Rod Class back on. But I don't, I, th- I think he mentioned that they postpone his case until March 2019. So, and that's in the Supreme Court. And that's Rod Cat Class's case. But anyway, um, next week is JC and Shaman. And we'll work on getting some good guests on in the future. Like Bill is so good. <laughs> All right, everybody, you. have fun. You're welcome. Good, uh, we'll good see night. you. Uh, good night. We'll see you next Thursday. Have a great weekend and stay dry. We'll see you next time. Take care of each other. Good night.